Welcome to the Badger Cast, a podcast by the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership. I'm Ryan Owens, the director of the Thompson Center. Thanks for joining us today. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for uh, listening to the podcast today. We're pleased to have Professor Ken Mayer with us. As uh, surely all of you know, uh, Ken Mayer is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's an expert on the executive. He is a prolific scholar uh, and a fantastic teacher. Uh, we thought it would be good to bring him in today to talk a little bit about impeachment, um, you know, where we are right now with the um, you know, ongoing investigation uh, into the Ukraine dynamic and just kind of give us some, some context here as, as we move forward. So uh, thanks for joining us, Ken. It's good to be with you. This is actually my first podcast. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, I'm pleased that you're doing that with us. We're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to host these things. So let's just talk a little bit about this. Um, you know, this, this Ukraine story broke and it seems like you know, the, 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 the dam broke and the water is just pouring through. We talked about this a little bit ago. It's, you know, every five, ten minutes, it seems like there's something new happening. You're almost afraid to go to the bathroom because when you get back, you're going to miss out on something, right? Um, so, you know, just, just tell us a little bit about the background of this. What, how did this come to pass and sort of where, where are we now? So the sequence kicked off with a notification by... Uh, the director of national intelligence that they had received a whistleblower complaint uh, and that the whistleblower complaint was not going to be forthcoming and that got everybody's attention and uh, things started to happen sort of the sequences it was around last Thursday you began to see uh, Democrats in the House and Senate demanding access to the report or the whistleblower complaint, you began to see press coverage from presumably people in the White House who were beginning to talk about what it might have covered in the relationship to a phone call that uh, the president had with the president of U Ukraine in July. And that drip, drip, drip turned into, as you said, that the dam broke to the point where uh, you you began to see more Democrats talking about supporting an impeachment inquiry. Uh, the transcript, or not a transcript, but a readout of the phone call uh, was released uh, Tuesday morning. Uh, it was pretty, pretty damning. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, you had uh, Pelosi announcing her support for an impeachment inquiry, which actually happened while I was teaching my uh, presidency class and, and talking about this. <laughs> Very timely. Uh, and here we are Thursday afternoon. In the last 48 hours, we have seen uh, the whistleblower complaint provided to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. Then it was declassified and released. Um, you have uh, had multiple memos that were uh, previously, as I understand it, not released, including one declassified memo from the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department going into more detail about what their judgment, why the whistleblower complaint did not have to be forwarded to Congress under the whistleblower protection. Yeah, Act. so, so let, let's talk about that for a second. So, the, the, so basically the underlying allegation here is that President Trump, um, through a series of conversations with the, uh, the new president of Ukraine, basically said to the president of Ukraine, um, 
that you know you you need to uh, you need to reopen this investigation into Biden, or basically there'll be trouble for you. So that that's the complaint um, that that um, some officer uh, we now have heard from the CIA, but somebody in the White House overheard these conversations and reported them to the Inspector General, um, uh, and the Inspector General then wrote a summary up and sent it over to the Department of Justice, saying under the statute. We've had this complaint filed. We at, in the inspector general's office believe that this complaint merits significant review. Uh, it, it, it looks like it's a real thing. And so they kicked it over to that Department of um, National Intelligence. And at that point, the Department of National Intelligence decided not to uh, release the complaint to Congress. Is that correct? So basically that that's my understanding and the and the background here is that when congress initially passed the inspector general act in the 1970s after watergate it provided a mechanism for whistleblowers who could disclose uh what they saw as agency misbehavior violations of the law both internally but also they could talk to congress about it well the problem from the intelligence community was that their uh, it, it, it wasn't clear that they had the right under the law to actually talk to Congress because what they do is so highly classified. Okay. Okay. So in 1998, I think, uh, the, the act was amended to provide a process for intelligence community whistleblowers to, uh, uh, to disclose through a process uh, information to Congress. And the sequence is, if someone believes that there is wrongdoing, they report it to the Inspector General. Uh, the Inspector General conducts its own investigation. If they find that it is, uh, uh, the language of the statute is that if it is urgent, mm -hmm. um, they make that determination. They inform, they provide the report to the, to the intelligence community director, uh, and it could apply to agencies in addition to the, to the DNI or director of national intelligence. And then the statute says that when the director receives an inspector general report that meets this definition, it shall be forwarded right. to the chairs of the uh, congressional intelligence committees, uh, which appears to leave no discretion. Uh, and that didn't happen. And the reason uh, that it wasn't forwarded was a claim. First, the, first the claim was that there was privileged information that right. uh, the president has, through executive privilege, has the right to keep information from Congress. What the report actually said, the advice that the Office of Legal Counsel uh, provided is that it didn't meet the statutory definition of something under the area of concern. It, didn't, it wasn't intelligence activity because it, it wasn't something that was within the intelligence community. The, it involved the president, not someone in the intelligence community. So there was a, a statutory carve out, which means, which mm -hmm. meant that they didn't have to provide it to uh, uh, to Congress. Well, that just seemed to raise more questions right. than answered. Right. And we know from the last forty eight hours that you know we, we've seen the report, we've seen the opinions, and uh, it. Uh, this is this is where we are now. Yeah. So, but I, I do think that that's. It's an important point to, for us to bring up just briefly. I know it might seem, seem like it's a little bit in the weeds, but it, it is an important point. I mean, simply because it says in the statute that the executive shall turn this stuff over, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to do it. If they have a legitimate constitutional claim saying that this is privileged information that belongs to the executive and the legislature is overreaching, you know, they, they can refuse to provide 
that material. So I do think, you know, whether they're right or wrong in doing that is a separate question, right, in this context. But I, I do think, um, you know, I've heard members of Congress saying that they may, uh, might bring impeachment charges against the president for failing to comply with this statute. But I don't think it's correct to say that simply because that statute says the president shall comply with it, that failure to do so is an impeachable offense. I do think here there are there are possible other avenues by which they can go after him. So I, I just I don't think that's a particularly strong argument for them. There are many others that they're likely to pursue. I don't know. I just think that might be something that falls out. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it seems to me that when Congress amended the statute in 1998 to provide for this process, no one had in mind the possibility that the yeah. whistleblower might actually be the president. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. talking about that's right. You know, uh, the intelligence committee community abuses of the 1970s and 1960s. I don't think anybody imagined that uh, someone in the White House would be involved. Right. Uh, right. So this this was a uh, I mean, it's become a cliche to say that we have seen one unprecedented set of circumstances yeah. after another. But I think that's probably why this just was not something that anybody thought was remotely right. possible under the statute. But you're right that the president uh, has a uh, well-established constitutional authority to keep certain deliberations private. Um, uh, we know that that privilege does not extend to... Uh, keeping information about criminal activity. So there are some limits exactly to it, right. but yep. I mean, yep. going back to George Washington, presidents have refused to provide diplomatic information and communications to Congress. So that privilege is established. Yep. There are some exceptions, one of which we know from, uh, uh, from uh, Nixon versus the United States that, yep. that the president cannot rely on executive privilege to uh, impede the other branches from carrying out their constitutional uh, obligations. And I was talking about the courts, uh, but presumably that would apply to Congress as well. Yeah. So, so that's where we are today then. So we've got an allegation that the president on uh, a phone call or potentially a series of phone calls now um, essentially tried to, to sort of pressure uh, Ukraine to look into uh, to look into Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son. I mean, the, the, the main allegation here is that the president used his power as president to engage a foreign country uh, to interfere with and potentially influence the outcome of the 2020 elections. So I, I think that's right. So one of the things I, I ask students, my students to do is take away the names, take away the party, take away everything but the underlying essentials. And that is uh, really even under the most sympathetic reading of the, the plain text is that a president asked a foreign government to initiate an investigation of one of his main political rivals. Uh, and uh, it doesn't matter if there was any reason to initiate that investigation. It doesn't matter if, whether or not Biden actually did anything wrong. Right. So it could very well be that Biden actually was, that Biden's son was, you know, inappropriately on this. I mean, it certainly was a stupid decision to be on this, uh, you know, dictator's uh, gas, uh, you know, board sure. or whatever. But that's, that, that's a separate question from what we're talking about here, which is, you know, the president using his authority to try to engage in investigation by a foreign country. Right. And then that is the strip to its essential it's essentials, that's it. But then you add in 
additional context, the fact that hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid had been blocked and had not been forthcoming, uh, that uh, uh, the the target of the investigation was the president's main political rival and then right. the, the context of the conversation, which was, we've done a lot of things for you. Uh, they have not been reciprocated. We want to have a good relationship. Uh, Zelensky then said, yes, we agree. We really want to buy these, uh, get access to these weapons that would be useful for our defense. And then the president says, I want you to do me a favor though. So yeah. it, it, you, you add in and one of the things we know from the whistleblower complaint, the allegation that this was not the only conversation. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's what well, I want to ask about next. And, yeah, and, and also, is. yeah, also that uh, the the transcripts, the the verbatim transcripts, and possibly recordings uh, were moved to a highly secure uh, system within the National Security Council to keep them outside of the normal distribution channels. Right. Uh, most of the time, these conversations would be uh, classified, I think when, when, the, when the readout memo was, was disclosed, it was classified secret, which is not a particularly high level of classification. But the, if it were moved to the NSC system, uh, which would re restrict with the intention of keeping this private, that sort of adds uh, uh, another level of possible wrongdoing to this. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, that's so. All right. So yesterday you and I talked about this very briefly after the summary of the transcript came out. My first reading of it was this is not great. Um, it's not good for the president, but, it, you know, it's not as bad as um, some people you know were, were thinking it would be. That was my first reaction to it. And then I went back and I read it and then I reread it and I thought to myself, boy, that you know, this this really isn't good, and it's it's a simpler narrative than the Russia collusion. It's a lot easier to sell this, and it's happening real time. So I, I thought by the end of the afternoon yesterday that this is going to become a significant problem for the president. Um, releasing that summary of the transcript, I, I, I don't quite understand why they did it. It seemed like, you know, political suicide to me, but maybe that was the best option they had. At any rate, notwithstanding that, the release of this whistleblower complaint today seems to be even worse because it indicates two things. One, that the president may have had multiple conversations of this sort where he tried to pressure or influence uh, the, the, the president of Ukraine. And number two, that a potential cover-up here is, is, is ongoing, that you know, rather than having these transcripts retain whatever traditional status they have, that they tried to move these into highly classified areas to get them out of access to the public arena. And if that's the case, that seems to me where it's a classic example of the cover-up basically doing you in potentially even more than the initial thing. Although here, you know, both uh, could yeah, be problematic. So, you know, here, it, it, the, the cover-up would be uh, evidence that what they, they knew that what they were doing was wrong. Right. Uh, because it was before anybody found out about it. Um, the, uh, uh, so the, it's also possible that the, that the readout is, uh, doesn't have everything that was said. Uh, uh -huh. I don't know that, but, right. uh, it, 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 
it notes that it is not a verbatim transcript. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time that there had been something in the release that was sort of sanitized. Um, so that that's something that that we don't know. And certainly, uh, what was released was I think was damaging enough. Uh, it seems to me that the the reason that they released it, there are a couple of possibilities. One is that the people who were advising the president just had terrible judgment and didn't understand how damaging right. this could be, which is possible. It is possible, yeah. Uh, yeah. The yeah. other is, as you said, they may not, they may have figured they had no alternative. It right. may, may have learned that it was already out. That that it, and uh, you know, the thinking about the level of competence uh, in the White House, uh, there was one uh, set of events yesterday. It's actually kind of funny. That apparently someone in the White House communications office mistakenly set, sent some talking points on it to a bunch of Democrats, much more beyond simply the, the people who they were trying to communicate, their allies in Congress and sympathetic people. One of them apparently was Pelosi, uh, who was emailed. <laughs> and then when the staffer realized that they had mistakenly sent it, they sent another email saying, oh, we want to recall that. Yeah, good we, luck. We, we with want that. it back. And so that, that, <laughs> we're, we're not. I mean, this has been an issue for for a while. We're we're not dealing with a White House staff comprised of of uh, you know a listers with with lots of experience. Uh, but uh, yeah, it could have been that that they didn't realize it. They had no alternative. But the clearly the sequence of events over the last twenty four hours yeah. clearly shows that they. They, they no longer control the story. Yeah. It's beyond their ability. And, and uh, uh, that, that means that I, I think it's likely that over the next day or two uh, that, that this, these revelations are going to, yeah, we're going to continue coming. to see them. And the other implication, which is, you know, kind of staggering is if you look at the whistleblower complaint, you note that the, the, the person who, the whistleblower, the person who made the complaint, was not actually a witness to the phone call. Right. They, they uh, and and that notes that numerous White House officials told them about it, and so we have uh, a White House that is pretty clearly leaking like crazy. Yeah. Right? People talking to the whistleblower, talking to each other, talking to reporters, and they, they clearly have the White House no longer has control of, of, of the narrative or the, or, or the information. Yeah. And, and you're, you are starting to see some of the people around the president, uh, distancing themselves a little bit. You know, the department of justice just came out, I think it was yesterday and said that, you know, attorney general Barr had no idea about some of the stuff he hadn't spoken to. I mean, so, you know, they're really sort of covering their, their rear ends now a little bit as well. So I, I want to move forward just a little bit. You mentioned Nancy Pelosi. Um, there are now, you know, a majority of the House of Representatives is now on record as supporting impeachment. Well, um, supporting an inquiry. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But, you know, I think we know kind of where this is headed on uh, among the Democrats on this. Um, what is that impeachment inquiry hearing going to look like? I mean, what committee, you know, are they going to use? Is Nancy Pelosi going to create a, a, a special committee for this? Do you think she's going to try to run it through the Judiciary Committee or some of the other committees that have already been working on it? So how they do it is entirely up to the discretion of the House. Yep. Uh, from what we know, or what uh, it, it appears that Pelosi is encouraging uh, all of the 
different allowing the committees to take the lead and, and asking all of the information to eventually go through the Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I saw a report today that, that uh, Pelosi wants to limit it to Ukraine. Which politically uh, is probably the smart choice. Well, you know, sort of, it's important to note that impeachment is a political process. It's not a legal yeah. process. It's a political process that, has, that, that it takes a legal form, but it's not a court. It operates under different rules. And so the, from Pelosi's perspective, uh, one of the things that distinguishes this story with the phone call and the pressure from the Mueller report uh, is that this is simple. You can describe this in a paragraph, yeah. what happened. And the, the, the black letter text of what happened is a few pages as opposed to uh, the Mueller investigation, which was hundreds of pages and thousands of uh, hours and hundreds of witnesses. And, and it's, it's much harder to get your, get, get your head wrapped around where this one is, if the facts are what they look like they are, that, that, that is, that is enough. And it's a, and it's a, it's a charge and a claim and a narrative and an, and an instance of uh, behavior that is simple. It's yeah. simple to characterize. It's simple for people to understand, and it's unambiguous. Yeah, we, I mean, we talk a lot as political scientists about framing, and I think this will be a much easier frame for Democrats to put together. Um, you know, it, two, two other things here. Um, the first is I just think it's sort of significant to note that this, this phone call occurred with the president of Ukraine, I think literally the day after he was essentially uh, claimed exoneration from Mueller after Mueller went and appeared and provided his testimony in Congress. So, I mean, it seems it seems as though, you know, the aftermath of that, he felt somewhat emboldened uh, to, to, to move forward on this. Um, I don't know, I just, the, the timing on that seems somewhat ironic. But I want to actually ask you a question about where this goes now moving, moving forward. So we are going to have the impeachment inquiry. Um, you know, the timing on this is going to be interesting. When are we going to hold these uh, hold these hearings? How close will it be to the election? Um, you know, what do you think the response from Republicans will be to this? We got an indication of that yesterday when Lindsey Graham said that you know this is basically a nothing burger. Um, do you think they're going to change, or do you think the the base will become lukewarm? Any any thoughts on that? Well, there's a huge amount that we don't know. Uh, and and not only in terms of the the facts, but also trying to make a forecast of what's what what may happen. Uh, there are precedents that uh, it it's, seems to me that that uh, the the clarity of Trump's denials is that he's talking to his base, trying to lock them in, trying to make sure that they are uh, his supporters will be resistant to any. Uh, new information. Uh, uh, you saw something, I don't know if it be the way to describe it is similar or analogous with the Nixon impeachment, where when the process started, uh, Republicans were solidly behind him. But over the course of the hearings in 1973 and additional information and in the reporting, by the summer of July of 1974, that Republicans had abandoned him because, mm -hmm. and, and even with Republicans abandoning him. There were Republicans took a historic hammering in the 1974 midterm elections. 
So some of this will be a function of uh, the political judgment of his Republican allies in Congress about whether this is damaging them. Yeah. And that's, you're already beginning to see uh, some, some initial movement where some Republicans in the House and the Senate are expressing some concern or saying this doesn't, this doesn't look good. Certainly it's not, um, you know, it's not a tidal wave or, but uh, it, there's an old saying among bankruptcy lawyers that the way you go bankrupt is slowly and then all at once. So <laughs> it could be that uh, something similar to what happened to the Democrats with this story is that resistance and not much movement, something happens and then yeah. you reach a tipping point and, and it changes. Uh, some of that will be a function of uh, how the public responds. I've seen different polls. Uh, I've seen polls that suggest that the public is still kind of skeptical uh, with less than 40% proving it. But I've also seen other polls taken more recently where you're already starting to see movement. So that's yeah. that's kind of hard to predict. But it, it uh, this just... Uh, I've learned not to trust my gut on these things, but this just, this, this feels like this is, this is different than, uh, and it, it has the, 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 uh, capacity to, to trigger a, a bigger reaction than some of the, uh, some of what has, has happened in previously yeah. in the administration. It, it does. It, it does feel different. Although, you know, I will say one problem that Democrats are encountering here or, or, are likely to encounter <clears throat> is that they've they've really been you know chicken little since 2016 saying the sky is going to fall the sky is falling the sky is falling impeach 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 uh, you know and at, at some point I think people begin to tune that out now whether this rises to the level of an impeachable offense you know we'll we'll certainly see but I think that there might be people out there who just think to themselves yeah this is just another just another allegation and, you know, life goes on. Um, I don't know which route it's going to go. You're absolutely right. It's a more simple narrative. They can frame it up easier. But the question is, how exhausted are people from this? How numb have they become to this? Uh, and, and, you know, you're right. We don't know that yet. We, we have to see how it plays out. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's clearly the strategy of, of the White House and the allies of the White House to say that, you know, this is the latest example in a long stream that Democrats have been trying to undo the election from the beginning and that people have been calling for his impeachment since uh, before he was inaugurated. Right. Uh, uh, but I don't know what we would expect them to say. Right, uh, right. So, uh, that's right, that's um, right. Because that, that's, that's, that, that's about the only defense that, that one can make. Uh, and, you know, the, the task for the Democrats, if we sort of line up the politics is to, uh, with some clarity, make the case to the public that this is different, that, that and that this, this is, this is unambiguous. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, how that will work out seems to me that, that the notion of appointing Corey Lewandowski as the head of the internal, you know, war room team is, you know, that, that kind of, of open defiance is one of those things that kind of works until it doesn't work. Yeah. And when it stops working, it stops working pretty hard. Uh, but so. you, know, you know what I find fascinating about this is 
you know, who who are the senators that are going to, assuming that the impeachment proceeds through the House, he gets impeached, and then it goes to removal proceedings. Um, who are some of the senators who are going to be deciding on, on this? Well, there's going to be Lion Ted, Little Marco, right? Uh, you know, a, a lot of U.S. senators that Trump, uh, you know, picked on and, and, and mocked along the way. And so it's it's just interesting to me to think about what might happen if we reach something akin to a tipping point. Will those people wind up, you know, pulling out the knives and saying, you know, payback sucks, Donald? Well, think of it this way, that the Republicans are defending 23 seats in 2020. The Democrats, I think, are defending 12. Yeah, something like that. Uh, and... Uh, you know, from watching politics, that politicians can to, tend to get religion when their futures are <laughs> at risk. Yeah. And if uh, Susan Collins or Lindsey Graham believe that they can defend the president strongly and that this will not cost them their seat, they're likely to do it because uh, people, the public, uh, likes the idea of politicians acting on principle when it goes against their self-interest, right. it's actually really rare. Uh, <laughs> but when when their uh, self-interest lines up with principle, you could, I could easily see uh, Susan Collins or uh, uh, Bennett, uh, people who are up for re-election, or even Mitch McConnell making a decision that he's at a point where if they continue on this pace or on this track, they're going to lose the Senate. Uh, and if they decide they're going to stop defending the president, they may still lose the Senate, but it, but it would be less of a land. You know, there's, a, there's a political yeah, judgment right, going right, on there. That's right. And uh, it's, uh, that's, that's the unknown. I mean, if, if uh, it's a function of national opinion, it's a function of people in their state, there's, it's a function of uh, the credibility of the candidates who are running against them. Uh, but it, the, the pieces seem to be in place for that kind of tipping point to occur. We would be in a different situation if uh, uh, Republicans had a nine-seat majority and were only defending yeah. 10 seats. That's right. The, just the, the, there, there are a lot of moving parts that, that uh, uh, could suggest that there are some, that there are risks here, not to mention the fact that the, the president's allies that 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 is an alignment that appears to be based as much on self-interest than oh it's very transactional of, yeah yep. very any kind of uh, loyalty or uh, or uh, affection yeah I think that's right well this is a very active story I mean there as we mentioned there's stuff popping you know every every minute every five minutes so we're going to keep our eye on this um, potentially. You know, do some more podcasts on this if uh, you know if, if the spirit moves us. But um, thanks for joining us oh, today. We appreciate my your pleasure. Time. We could do this every twelve hours. <laughs> Please no. <laughs> thanks, Ken. My pleasure. Well, thanks for listening today. If you like the show, please feel free to go on to whatever place you get your podcast from and leave us a review. It certainly helps us expand uh, our audience, and the positive feedback is always good to have. So thanks for listening, and join us next time.